God's mercy and forgiveness. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the second psalm. And this will be our first reading. Psalm 2, verse 1, here now, the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me. And I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. And ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. So, if you'll notice, Psalms 1 and 2 are untitled. We don't really get a psalm title until we come to Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Uh, And then the companion psalm, Psalm 4, here uh, to the chief musician on Neginot, as it were. Uh, I think that commentators are right when they say, not all of them do, but some of them say, that Psalm 1 and 2, because they are orphan psalms here at the beginning of the psalm, they ought to be taken together, not, uh, not as one psalm, but as two psalms introducing the entirety of the Psalter. Remember, I've told you that the Psalter is very often antithetical. It places that very large difference between the righteous and the wicked. Well, that's how it starts in Psalm 1. There's a great difference between the righteous man and the wicked man. But now here in Psalm 2, we note that we take that introduction and we blow it up to its full proportion. Now we have the great ones of the earth, or can I say it this way, the greatest ones of the earth, and their opposition to God. And what is required of them. So, what we have here then in Psalm 2 is the raging of the heathen. The people imagining vanities. What are vanities? Anything that is apart from God and His glory. Remember the difference, the opposites. The two opposites in the Old Testament are glory and vanity. Glory comes from the Hebrew word chavod, which means to be heavy, weighty, worth something. Right? You'll remember Pastor Todd's definition of glory. 
hold out your hands and go like this. Heavy, right? But vanity is the opposite. Is the opposite of that. They imagine vanities. They reason about vanities. They reason apart from God and His glory. And so notice that the default mental construct of the world is vanity. That's the default mental construct of the world. They imagine and reason out vain things. Why? Because they reason apart from God. I'm not a, quote, Vantillian. Some of you will know what that means in my apologetic. But I will say this about Dr. Vantill, that he understood that in order for anything rightly to be reasoned with, understood, and received, it must be in the context of God who created all things. In his purpose and for his glory. And if we haven't yet reckoned with anything in that way, we haven't rightly reckoned with it. Which means that the world is steeped in vanity and in darkness because they rage against God and against his The next word is against his anointed, and that's simply the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is the uh, equivalent for the Greek word Christos, which is indeed Christ. And so when they reason and rage against the Lord Jehovah and his anointed, or I believe it is Adonai here, isn't it? Well, not yet. It it will be Adonai later. They reason against Jehovah and against his Christ. Against Christ himself. To rage against Jehovah is to rage against Christ because Christ is Jehovah. He is the second person of what we call the Godhead, Jehovah God. So what do they say? Let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. Let us throw aside all restraint and be free from this God that has created us. We understand the losing proposition that that is. To be free from the God who created you is to be free from your life and breath whom he holds or which he holds in his hands. This is why such thinking is vain. Not to identify or to fail to identify your life as being bound up in God's sustaining power is indeed the height of vanity. And again, as Van Til once said, a man must sit in God's lap and breathe his air in order to slap him in the face. Is that not true, beloved? And so the wicked man here, as he is augmented and brought to his full expression in Psalm 2, we see how wicked wickedness is. Let us throw off all the restraint and what I believe David means here. I believe David wrote this psalm. Uh, What David means here is let us throw off all moral restraint and everything that goes with it. And so let us then teach that, um, that intellect, knowledge, is neutral, right? So that we can, we, there is no moral restraint on our knowledge. We can, so we will, right? 
and then we will throw off all the rest of morality such that if we can develop a, quote, science, we're free to do it at our pleasure and leisure if we think it advances ourselves. So that is the description of the raging of the heathen against the Lord. Um, Notice it is not only the unbeliever, but it is the greatest among them, the kings of the earth. They set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. So we take that wicked man that we've described in Psalm 1, and now we take him at his greatest. And why would we take him at his greatest? What is the Lord doing here through his servant David? He is saying that the greatest of the wicked, no matter what place they're in, they are, number one, subservient to the Lord, and when they turn away from that, when they rebel against him, he continues to sit, right, enthroned, right, powerful, sovereign in heaven, and it will not be to their to their good, it will be to their detriment, for he will laugh at them. <coughs> he will laugh at their little tyrant, petty dictator attitude against the Lord of Heaven. I remember there was a comedian once who told a story about having a digestive upset. And he was going in, and it was consternation how he should describe that. He was afraid of being ridiculed as, quote, Mr. Tummy Ache. Right? This is what's going on here. This is, it's that same kind of ridicule. Oh, Mr. Ruler. The Lord will laugh. He will have them in derision. And children, what that means is the Lord will mock them. Now, this is one of those instances when the Lord does something that he tells his people they can't do rightly. We don't mock people. That's not our place. But when God mocks someone, he mocks them perfectly, in perfect uprightness. We may be mocking someone today that will be God's child tomorrow, and we didn't know it, but not God. His enemies, he knows the end from the beginning. He will laugh at them, and he will have them in derision. Then he will speak to them. First, he will laugh. He will have them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And children, it says he will vex them in his sore displeasure. You know what it means to vex someone? It means to trouble them. It means to put them to fright. It means to have an effect on them in such a way that they will be stressed and afraid. This is what God will do to his enemies. Well, so far we want to stop and we say, and we want to say this. Out of all things in the world, the last thing we want to be is God's enemy. We don't want his, his laughing. We don't want his mocking. We don't want his vexing. We want his pleasure. We desire that we should be near to God, not far from Him as these are described here. 
And so we must come to him through Jesus Christ. All right, so what will he say to those kings of the earth? Here's what he says. Not, turn to me. No, he doesn't say that. Not, stop doing that. No, no. Because they need to do more than that. He will give them something that they need to recognize. You think you're ruling? You think you're governing? I have set my king on Mount Zion. That's the first thing that they need to know. Because they need to know to whom they should submit and to whom they should come. And it is to Christ. It is to that king that is set on Mount Zion. Notice the grace and the absence of any legalism or merit here. He tells them what? Not stop doing that. He threatens them with his mocking and his laughing and his vexing. And when they are rightly softened up with that, he presents them his king. You must bow to this king. If you will be delivered from my mocking, from my anger, from my displeasure, from my wrath, you must come to this king. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. As Andrew Melville told King James, Your majesty, we will always honor you. We will always honor your majesty in person. But remember that there are two kingdoms in Scotland. There is the kingdom of King James, which we will always support. And there is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are not a ruler there. And of Christ you are his petty vassal in your kingdom. Kings of the earth must bow to Christ. The the greatest of the wicked must learn to come to him. And if the greatest, then the least. If the man, the wicked man in the earth who has the greatest amount of resources must come to Christ. Certainly the man who has the least must come to Christ. So I've set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Now Christ, the king, speaks. And listen to what he says. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said to me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And so... We remember what it means for God to have an only begotten Son. We remember that from John 1.18 in our study of the traditional text. And we remember what that means is that when those kings come to Christ, they must worship Him not as a competing ruler in the world, but as very God. When they come to Christ, they must worship Him as very God, their Creator, their Sovereign, their Sustainer. That is how they must worship Christ. And that is how they must come. Then Jehovah answers. Jehovah God the Father answers. Ask of me, he says to Christ. And I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. And the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. This is the promise of the Father to the Son. Because the Son is that second Adam. You'll remember that same promise was made to Adam in the garden. The world is yours. Subdue it. You're my deputy to subdue the world unto me for my glory. He failed. 
Christ the second Adam comes in his room and he receives that same promise because he has triumphed and will triumph. And so, ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Notice it says here, uh, not the nations as nations, but the, but the peoples and the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? This is that gospel promise that God made to Abraham. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed in thy seed. That is in Christ. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 9. And we only focus in verse 9 on one part of the world. Right? Remember that in Luke's gospel we have a twofold statement of the stone. And what does the stone do? You either fall upon the stone or the stone falls on you. If it falls on you, it grinds you to powder. If you fall upon the stone, you will be broken. That is broken of your self-righteousness. Broken of your nature. But if that stone falls upon you instead, you will be ground to powder. That's what's being spoken of here in verse 9. Because what we have in focus are the rebellious great ones of the world. And they will be broken. They will be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. Because the kingdom of this king that sits upon Mount Zion is that very same kingdom that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 2. It is the rock made without hands and it will come and it will smash the kingdoms of the world that will not bow the knee. So verse 10, Be wise now therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve Jehovah with fear and rejoice with trembling. Notice also, kiss the sun. Do you remember the word proskuneo? I've, I've likened that to you by, by saying it's, you know, you can hear the word knee in it. So it's reverently bowing like taking a knee or the knees before God. But that's not what the original word means. The word kuneo in the Greek language means to kiss, to do obeisance to, to take hold of like that Antichrist in Rome requires of his subjects to take hold of his hand and to kiss his ring, to do do obeisance to him. This is what is being said here. Notice, serve Jehovah and kiss the Son. Why? Because he is the only begotten Son of God, God himself. So how are the kings to worship the Son? As their very God. And nothing short of it. Kiss the son lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little or for a little. It is difficult to know exactly what the Hebrew means there. But then notice the assurance at the end. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. They will not be destroyed. They're the opposite of what goes on in verse 9. They will not be broken with that rod of iron. They will not be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. If I might say one more thing about verse 9, it is a rod of iron. It is unbending. It does, not, uh, it does not change. It does not move. It does not change the standard. The judgment is according to that unbending rod of God, the scepter in Christ's right hand. Well, what a, what a threatening and encouraging psalm. 
It's threatening in that should we fail to kiss the sun, we, we're not even the great ones of the world. All of the great ones of the world are commanded here to kiss the sun. Well, that, where does that leave the rest of us? And so, beloved, let me end with verse 12, the second half. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. He is coming, and he is coming with his rod, beloved. Put your trust in him that you be not shattered like a potter's vessel when he comes. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer.